Well, good morning. It's very, uh, very good to be here with you. And, uh, you know, as, as we were driving up here this morning from Edmonton, we were turning the windshield washers on and off and on and off as the rain was coming and going all the way here. And you could almost see the grass uh, getting green and the crops uh, giving a big sigh of relief and, and coming, coming to life. And reminds me of the new life we have in Jesus Christ. But, you know, I thought, I thought this morning I'd talk about gardening. And, um, you know, gardening is something that many of you take pleasure in and some of you don't. I, I'm not a big fan of gardening if it's long rows of carrots and potatoes and stuff and, and represents work of some kind. But, you know, when it comes to cutting the grass and, and having some flower pots and things around the, around the yard to, to look pretty, I, I really like that. So uh, it's pleasurable for, for many people and it's definitely healthy. It's healthy to get out, uh, out of the house and, and into the fresh air and do something physical with, with the ground and the weeds and all of that. And uh, so it's healthy that way. And, well, I suppose if you're working in the garden, you're not getting in tr into trouble other places, so that's maybe good too. But it's a Sunday morning, and uh, we, we need to open our Bibles. And, and of course, we, we know from the very beginning that gardening is biblical. Uh, Genesis 2.8 says, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. So it, it all began in a garden. Uh, the, the human experience, the, the, the relationship between God's creation, uh, his, his creation of his own image in, in the man and woman, uh, began in a garden. The first person was a gardener. So, uh, so it's not, it's not uh, unusual that we would find it pleasurable and that the rains that water the gardens would give us give us uh, good feelings. Now, if we, if we go forward into the New Testament, we find Jesus, um, Jesus told many stories and taught in many different ways, but he used more farming and gardening parables and stories and illustrations than any other kind. He used other kinds of stories too, but that was his, his go-to. That was the place where he went for illustrating his kingdom and his teachings in farming and gardening. And uh, I think as I, as I look across scripture and, and in, our, in, in our own life experience that um, I think we can translate that, that beginning in the garden and, and these stories into, into different kinds of things because we're not all farmers, we're not all gardeners, but we can all do something productive in this world. We can all do things that make the world better and make it grow and, and make it uh, produce good things. I've come to understand my, my job um, in that way. I know uh, there's some new people here from when I stood here most Sundays, and maybe you don't know me well, but, but when I was the pastor here, uh, I thought of myself, um, I, the, the image that was productive in my mind was that of a shepherd. And, uh, but now as district superintendent going from church to church, maybe... Uh, you know, even just, just today, it, it's kind of illustrative. Last, yesterday, I spent all day in White Court doing a, a church vision workshop with their leadership. Rushed home, went to bed, got up, walked the dog, rushed out here. <laughs> and now I'm, now I'm here to try, to try to give you something of value for just a moment. And then we're, we're back um, next weekend to a pastors and wives retreat. And, 
And uh, so, so I don't get to spend a lot of time just as you do in a garden, just, just carefully pulling a few weeds and planting and, and making it, make it all grow. And, and so, uh, so I think of it more, I think of it more along the lines of, uh, of planting seed and the, the parable where, where the, the farmer plants the seed and then God, God produces the growth of its own accord. And so, so that's kind of how I, I see it. And, and I do all kinds of things in that regard. Um, the mission statement of the Alberta Parkland District, which your church is a part of and which I'm the district superintendent of, is the APD mission is to engage in church planting, equip churches, and encourage pastors. So that's kind of my job description now, is to uh, equip churches and, and encourage pastors. And last, yesterday I was equipping in White Court with the Vision Seminar and um, encouraging pastors. I'm, I, I haven't heard for sure if I'm meeting with your search committee here on Father's Day after the service, but, but that was one of the reasons to come up here to, to help with that. Um, I think I have a map uh, of the district on one of the slides. One more. Okay, that's what I just read. Let's go one more. We didn't have time to coordinate before because I got here late, so so we're gonna we're gonna go with a little bit of back and forth between uh, between us. But um, yeah, so that's the that's the area. The red dots are the churches that I'm responsible for, um, and uh, and there's a lot of administration and and meeting with individual pastors, meeting with groups of pastors, and and many Sundays preaching in different churches. And so I'm here today in that regard. There's another aspect, if you go to the next slide, this, this is my colleagues now. Um, these, uh, these men, the other district superintendents and uh, some of the home office national leaders in the Free Church had the audacity to elect me the chairman of their committee. So, uh, so I, get to, I get to set some of the national conversation agenda now for, for the Free Church and, and lead in that area. So that takes up some of my time as well, and uh, so that's what I'm up to. Um, but as I do this work, and as, as I meet with, with different congregations in different churches, one thing uh, that, that maybe we'd all hoped would change, but seems to be accelerating, is the fact that, that I don't think there's very many people left who, who believe we live in normal times. Who, who doesn't have the impression that what used to be up now seems like it's down. What used to be considered right and moral now seems to be immoral. And what used to be immoral is now put in the front page as the, as the acceptable and even uh, most important things. And, uh, and we look at, at na international world conflict and we look at um, just it seems like systems we, we don't know what to trust anymore. I can get into lots of trouble by talking about these things, and maybe, but it, it really doesn't matter because I've, I've gone to the far extremes on, on all the different sides on issues, and even if people 100% disagree with those who are making the other side of the argument on any of the issues, and I know you could list them as I could, the ones that cause us uh, strife and anxiety and, and uh, fighting among people, uh, the, the polarization of sides, and everyone agrees on all the different sides that something 
that, that, that the world is about to end and society is falling apart and, and things are horrible. Everyone agrees on that, even if they completely disagree on, on what the solutions are, what even the problems are. And so um, we, we can get anxious about that. We, we can get um, upset about that and it can be difficult to understand as we're pulled in many directions. Well, you should be involved in this. Well, you should fight for this. Well, you should do this and you should do that. And, uh, and we, we struggle with that. And I just see that in, in all of our churches. So I thought maybe because it is Father Day, Father's Day, we'd think for a minute about the fact that fathers like to fix things. So, so I don't know if this is more, uh, more men than, than women, but um, you know, it turns out it was the marble in the ashtray. Sometimes we can damage a lot of things just by trying to fix them, right? Uh, or maybe a more productive solution is the next one. If, um, I don't know if you can read it. It'll cost you $300 to fix the squeak, or $14 you can just pay for this Iron Maiden CD and, and uh, turn it up real loud. <laughs> Sometimes that's what we want to do, right? It's a, it's a put your head in the sand kind of response. Well, just, just, just forget about all the issues and, and, and be quiet, and, and uh, it'll just go away, drown it out somehow. But that's not, I mean, it's a joke, but it's also serious because... That's one of the reasons I believe we're just seeing increases in mental health issues and addiction and overdoses and things like that. People are just, they're just finding a way to, to, to put all that fear and anxiety aside. And you know, I'm not here to tell you whether those predictions are true or not. Maybe, maybe in another few months, you know, the storm will pass and the ship will right itself and everything will, will be stable again. I don't, I can't, I don't know. But in the meantime, we do, as, as people in churches seeking to follow God, we need to make some choices about how we're going to live. So I, I began to search the scriptures, and, and my, my idea was there must be some place in God's word where people felt like society was absolutely falling apart and the world had been turned upside down, and God told them directly how they should live in such a time. And of course, it actually wasn't hard to find such situations in, in the Bible stories. So I, I went to the most extreme example. So, so that's where we're going to go this morning, uh, to, to look at a time when, when the world was, was in turmoil, and God told his people exactly what to do in such a time and how to live. Now, the place I'm going is 2 Kings 25 and 2 Chronicles 36, and I'm not going to read the stories to you. Uh, I... I hope you read your Old Testament and know these stories. If you don't, then, then read them for yourself uh, this afternoon. Be a good Father's Day activity. You know, Father, set your family down and read them uh, 2 Kings 25 about war and destruction. But, uh, but I would like to invite you to imagine yourself in that situation. Put yourself in that place. So... You know, we don't have time to get into all of the things, but, but there's a few things that I think you can imagine and kind of get an emotional attachment to as I tell this story. If you were living, if you were a Hebrew person living at the time just before the fall of Jerusalem, here's what would have been your situation. Let's say you lived in a, in a village, maybe Bethlehem or Bethel or one of the other ones near Jerusalem. You would have been a farmer primarily. Uh, and a farm family, you would have lived with extended family around you, and you would have known 
without any doubt that the, the, the land your foot stood on was the land that was given to your forefathers back in the book of Numbers. And you would have been able to trace your genealogy exactly back to that time. You, you were absolutely confident that God himself had given your family this land and had promised in covenant that it would be your land for all time to come. You would have been confident. You would have, been, you would have had the documents. You would have had the evidence that that was the case. Passed down father to son through the generations up until your time. And that's a solid place to stand. That's a confident place to stand, knowing that. Knowing that you're, you're carrying forward that heritage. Unchanged since the time of Moses and Joshua. Now you wouldn't be, you wouldn't be a, a stupid person. You would know the history. Judges and kings you would know that there had been times when your forefathers had followed God faithfully and God had brought the promised blessings of the covenant and that there were times when society had gone astray and had followed other gods and uh, the enemies had come and the locusts had come and, 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 the, and then the, the next judge would come along and, and, and move everyone back into following God and worshiping correctly in the tabernacle and later on under the kings in the temple. You would have known that history. And you would have known, you would have been aware that right now in your lifetime, things were on the downward swing. The, the politicians up there in the hills in Jerusalem and the city were corrupt. They were trying to write, make deals, against, putting Egypt against Babylon and taking bribes and, and doing all kinds of things. And that would not have made you happy. The justice system was not working well. Things were not in order. But because of that long history, you would have had the confidence that sooner or later, hopefully sooner, you would pray every day. A prophet would come. A judge would come. Things would turn around and God would return the blessing. You would have never imagined a different outcome than that. And so the Babylonians come. They get fed up with your king who's trying to make deals with Egypt, comes down with a massive army, ruining the land as he comes. You would have fled your village into the walled city of Jerusalem, every day believing that the deliverance would come, like in the times of Gideon, or the times, or the times of uh, Deborah, or the times of Samson. The deliverance would come. God would keep his word. And through all the immense, unimaginable, I think, to you and I, suffering, starvation in the city as it's surrounded, uh, violence of, of kinds unimaginable against men and women, Jerusalem falls. The kingdom of Judah is no more. The temple is taken apart stone by stone. And you're marched off with the others into Babylon. Talk about a world turned upside down. Talk about a shattering of worldview. Talk about a 
time of confusion and disorientation, when everything that seemed right and solid was now wrong and sandy. I have a picture there. I don't know. I think you can kind of see the blue lines. You can see the rivers flowing down, and then where that kind of red arrow goes, that's where archaeologists tell us there's a, there's a, a stream or a, a river that goes down there. But that's actually, that canal was actually dug by forced labor of the conquered peoples of the empire of Babylon. So what the Babylonians did with their captured people is they took them out into the desert along this canal that was dug from higher up in the river and then back into the river lower down. As, and, they, and they dropped them off there in the desert with, uh, with just some bags of grain or something like that. And, the, and, and they had the option to either die or somehow dig, dig, find ways to irrigate their crops from the canals and turn the barren land into productive land through their hard labor. So that's, that's where you would have been on the banks of a muddy irrigation canal with nothing. That's where God's people were. How do you pick up and live? As, as we search the scriptures, we can find some psalms that appear to have been written during this time. Uh, we can find uh, some things in Jeremiah and other prophets that were around during this time. And we can piece together some of the ideas that people had. And it seems that they had, they had, um, they had kind of three, three things in mind. Some people were saying, there in the desert, it's obvious that God has broken the covenant. We are no longer his people. So there's no point in having children. We might as well just sit down and die. What's the point of life? if we are no longer God's people, because that's what we have been from generation all the way back to Abraham. God has forsaken us. Essentially, God doesn't exist anymore. That was one argument, one option. Of course, you had the opposite extreme, like, like we do with every argument today, right? Opposite extremes. The opposite extreme was, oh, no, 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 God will, re God will honor his covenant. We just need to take these willow sticks and sharpen them up and, and put, ro put rocks and slings and, and go up, even though we're just a few and we're kind of half starving in the desert. If we, just, if we just go up against the Babylonians, God will come like he did in the days of, of, uh, of Gideon and conquer them for us. It's just that we haven't fought the right way. We haven't done the right things. God will still deliver us. And then there were others that, that felt that the best option was just to become Babylonians. Just forget about it all and assimilate into the culture. And so as they argued these points back and forth, I'm imagining it now, so don't talk, take this part as, as, as pure scriptural but as they argue these things back and forth, this is the part that we do know. They remembered someone who got it right. You see, when the Babylonians were advancing, many prophets were saying, do this or do that or offer this sacrifice or do this, and God will defeat them. Tickling their itchy ears. But there was one man 
who had been thrown in pits and wells and ridiculed and run out of town. But everything he said had come true. His name was Jeremiah. And they remembered that. And they said, Jeremiah was the true prophet. Jeremiah was the one. So they wrote back to Jeremiah. He was still in Jerusalem. He was still trying to make a living picking through the rubble of the city. And, uh, and, and they wrote back to him and they said, Jeremiah, we recognize you are a true prophet of God. How should we live in this situation? What should we do? What does God say to us? And that's where we come to Jeremiah 29, verse 4, where Jeremiah reveals God's will for his people in exile. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. It's the next slide. There we go. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which you have been carried into, in, into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So we're back to gardening, aren't we? What do you do? How do you live in a time when everything seems upside down? And it seems like God has maybe forsaken the land. You plant a garden. Now, maybe not literally plant a garden, but, but you get the picture here, right? Basically, what this is saying is live the best life you can live in the situation where you are. Now, these people were, were well-versed in the Old Testament. So when, when Jeremiah says to them, marry and have sons and daughters and build families and homes, build a house... In their minds, they would have been repeating the Deuteronomy passages about how to raise families. They would have been repeating in their minds the, the verses that talk about uh, putting God's word on your doorposts and, and talk about God when you come in and when you get out and, and put it on your foreheads and, and train up a child in the way you should go. All of those things from the Old Testament that tell you how to build a home and a family. That When Jeremiah writes these simple words that that, uh, that we just read together, that's what they would, would have all come into their minds because that was the context in which they had been raised and what they knew. So it wasn't simply build a house. It means, it means do those things in the Old Testament where God tells you how to be a family. Plant a garden. Now, I don't think that's the story you no normally heard in Sunday school about the Babylonian exile, the time in the Babylonian exile. There's some names that come to mind, right? You can tell them to me, can't you? Which names come to mind during that time in Babylon? Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. There's one more important one a little bit later. Ezekiel, and Esther, and Nehemiah as well. So those are the stories we tell, right? But, but we have to when we put that together, I think it makes sense. Again, the Bible so often relies on our intelligence and assumes that we're intelligent enough to think things through and put them together. 
My contention is that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego never existed without this. Without a deep and wide foundation of families on the sides of those irrigation canals, planting gardens, raising food, raising up children in the, in the, in the Lord, and praying for the people who had just conquered them. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego don't exist without that. We know the story. The, the, the emperor of Babylon sent out his scouts across the land to find the best and brightest to be trained up to be his advisors. Where did he find the best and the brightest of the land? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He found the best and brightest along the irrigation canals in the desert among the people who had just been conquered. Now, you don't get to be the best and brightest if you don't have a nutritious meal growing up. So they planted gardens. They made it productive. They fed their children. They gave them in marriage. You don't get the best and brightest if you don't have, have, have minds, young minds that are developed in, in reading and writing and in thinking. They taught them the word of God in the Old Testament. They taught them the law of Moses that gave them sharp minds with wisdom for how to live in this world. And when the scouts went out across the land, the place where they find, found the best of the best was there among God's people. So we know the story of three or four or five, the names of three or four or five of those people. Yes, God calls some rare individuals to do big things, political things, construct new societies, survive lion's dens and fiery furnaces. He calls a few, a very few, to that kind of work. But he calls them out, up out of a faithful people, a faithful community that lives well even in tough circumstances. There's a backdrop to those stories. I, I think of Nehemiah, cupbearer. Now, we know that was about 70 years after the fall of Jerusalem. And that, that just seems extraordinary to me. How could someone... Now, Nehemiah's parents or grandparents experienced the fall of Jerusalem. We know from history books how absolutely violent and terrible the Babylonians treated those they conquered. Anything you can imagine, it was probably worse. The abuse of women and men. They experienced that. And then they were carried off and put into a hard circumstance in the desert. And they raised children that were able to gain the trust of the very empire that destroyed them to the point where the, one of the most trusted person, the cupbearer, the one who, who was the gatekeeper between whether or not the emperor would be poisoned or not, sample the food before the king gets it. Yeah, they, they prayed for those who conquered them. It says, Jeremiah told them, 
Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which you've been carried. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now you might be you might be thinking, yeah, Marvin, but that was that was Old Testament. Like, like we live in different times. Well, if you read your New Testament, you'll very quickly discover that of all the places where God started churches in the book of Acts, the place that was worst done by by the local authorities was the city of Thessalonica. The worst persecutions against Christians in the New Testament was the Thessalonians. And Paul wrote them a letter and he told them how to live, how to live under a situation where their government and their authorities and the society around them was against them. Do you know what he said? First Thessalonians 4. I don't know if I have a slide for this. I do. Okay, good. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as, you, as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders so that you will not be dependent on anyone. Different words, but it's exactly the same advice that Jeremiah gave. Exactly the same advice. Now, they live in the city in Thessalonica, so they're not gardening like the people that Jeremiah wrote to. They're doing other kinds of things with their hands. But it's the same advice. Earn the respect of those people that hate you. Live quiet lives. Raise your families. Do good work with your hands. You see, it's because we work for a different kingdom. We're not working for the kingdoms of this world. I've studied history as well. I don't have the receipts here, the quotes to show you. But just take, for example, um, I did a lot of reading during the time of the fall of the Berlin Wall. And uh, the, the, the story that the, the news on TV never told you is that that whole thing happened. If you look down into the into the roots in those countries, those Eastern Bloc countries. It happened because thousands of people met in homes and did exactly what it says here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. They lived quiet lives. They worked with their hands. They prayed together, studied the Bible together, earned the respect of outsiders. And that simple, seemingly unimportant, invisible life is what undermined the powers that tried to dominate. It's the most important thing you can do. I'll just, I'll just get you to do this for a minute. This is easy. Just look around in this room. Go ahead. Turn your head all the way around. Look at everybody in here. And you probably know the ones that aren't here, that are often here. Okay. Love those people. 
Don't, you don't have to agree with them. You might have voted differently. That's the kingdoms of this world. We're working on a different level here. We might disagree on what to do in that regard, but, but we can agree on this thing. We are to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and your neighbor as yourself. These are your neighbors. Build a life together. Make it your ambition. Do you get this? It's ra- it sounds radical right now in our society. What we would write down is make it your ambition to be loud and obnoxious and get lots of attention. Get the most likes on your post. God says to you, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. To be unnoticed by the priorities of the society around you. Mind your own business. Work with your hands. And by doing that, you will earn such a reputation even by those who oppose you, that they will want to know how you do it. That they will be drawn to God. It's the most countercultural thing you can do. Build a strong, stable, God-fearing community among yourselves. It's the most radical thing you can do. And history tells us that societies have never turned around any other way except by hundreds of small groups of people doing just that. Because that's where the foundations of society lie. In your families, in your relationships with one another, in spreading one person to the next the kind of love that comes from above. Sometimes we throw up our hands and say, okay, the world's falling apart. Like the, you know, like the mechanic. Just put this Iron Maiden CD in, you won't hear the squeaking. But there is something you can do. Something radical. Love one another. Build a community. Pray for those who are against you and those who are for you. And love them too. Work with your hands. Literally, work with your hands. I, you know, we, we hear a lot about uh, misinformation and all that kind of stuff these days and, and lies. This is what I tell people. Nails don't lie. Nails don't lie. You can tell me all day long that you swung the hammer straight and true, but if the nail bent over, I know you didn't. Nails don't lie. Work with your hands. You will find truth. Those, the garden doesn't lie. Either you pulled the dandelion or you didn't. There's no lie. Train your children that way. You don't have to train them in the, in the intricacies of philosophy and all kinds of things. If they've worked with their hands, they know how to identify truth. Jeremiah said to God's people, in a time when their world was turned upside down and they couldn't really tell if faith was worth it anymore. He said, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number, do not decrease. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which you have been carried into exile. 
Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And 70 years later, they were back in Jerusalem. And God was turning the world back right side up. Let's do it. Let's pray. Lord, we sometimes want big and fancy answers because we think we're important. But you give us the truth. There has never been a different way that you build your kingdom and do your work in this world other than through the simple, faithful life of ordinary people. Sure, sometimes from among those ordinary people, you raise up extraordinary people that do big things that make it into the history books. But when we're, when we're honest, we, we know the truth. Those people, those, uh, whether, they're, um, whether they're Daniels or Nehemiahs or Billy Grahams or the names we know, we understand that they come from communities of people that have built simple, straightforward faith into their lives. So Lord, I pray for the Wainwright Evangelical Free Church. May they love one another in such an extraordinary way that the people around would be unable to explain it, except for the fact that they have received love from you to give to one another. And may they love their neighbors and even those who oppose in such a way that they earn a reputation but not, not their own reputation, but they earn you, the God we worship and serve, a good reputation. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.